1: and our YouTube channel to chronicle our adventures.
0: Come along with us to amazing places and learn from our mistakes and our successes. We hope that you will get out there too and have a photog
1: adventure of your own.
0: It's episode 18. Thanks, guys, for joining us again. Another photog adventures podcast today. I want to talk about our listener group and have 15 people have joined us so far. Thanks, guys, for joining us out there in the Photog Adventures listeners group. If you guys want to join us out there, we want you to come to Facebook and just search Photog Adventures listeners. You'll find us. Join the group. Some One of our administrators or moderators will let you into the group, and then you can share stories there. And speaking of sharing stories... We're always encouraging you guys to go out and have a photog adventure of your own. Well, we're starting to hear more from guys on Instagram or on our Facebook that they're actually going out and doing these things.
2: Mm-hmm. And I
0: thought it'd be nice if we shared them on the podcast. So okay. every podcast I'm hoping we can have a listener story of going out on a photog adventure. So if you guys had had a chance to go out with your camera, had a cool adventure with it. Let us know about it on our listener group or any of the medium that you want to reach us with and we'll read it on the air. Cool.
1: I just let, let a guy in last night on listeners group. So awesome. I just approved a new guy and <laughs> signed up a couple of friends as well. So So tonight our podcast we have a guest with us An tonight. Awesome guest. An awesome guest. His name is Royce Baer. He's been doing photography for a while. And we got some questions for him. Good to be here. Yeah, thanks for joining us.
0: Maybe what we should do is just have him talk about your history in photography and where you've been and give us yeah. a rundown of how you started photography, what you've done in photography professionally, and then we'll go into some of the questions that listeners have had that you can help us answer.
2: Uh, well, I started in photography back when we were doing daguerreotypes. No, not really. <laughs> I <was> like, <laughs> <laughs> but what I is am that? pretty experienced. <laughs> pretty old. <laughs> but I uh, started doing professional photography at about 1975. So wow. it goes way back. And uh, so I, I've shot film for, you know, 25, 30 years and went digital yeah. about 2000.
0: Was it a hard okay. transition to digital or were you still? Oh, I loved digital?
2: it. I was looking forward to... T- to it. I kept waiting for the megapixels to go up. Yeah, and once, yeah. once it hit six megapixels, I jumped in with both feet mm-hmm. as fast as I
0: could. <laughs> well, I have a bunch of listener questions, and we have a listener comment from our last podcast I want to bring up. And then we go to some specific astrophotography questions that we have for you. What I want to bring up is a listener commented last week. In our last podcast, we mentioned that it was difficult sometimes when you go in a location to get in the right mindset. Is I'm going to Fifth Water Hot Springs, and I'm going to go there by sunrise. And you have your camera tucked away in your bag, and you're not wanting to take it out. But as you're heading up there, you find cool things that you wish you could take photos of, but you just can't stop. You just feel like, oh, I don't want to stop. Well, Rob Rob brought up that his thing is that he's done, because he's found the same issue, is he wears that camera around his shoulder and has it out of his bag already. And he'll have an extra lens that he will put in a koozie. You know one of those like beer koozies mm-hmm. or soda pop koozies? Mm-hmm. You put that in there. He has an extra smaller lens that will put in the koozie in his pocket in his cargo pants so that it's not getting banged around too much. Oh. It has a little extra protection. That's a good idea. He's also got a really clever setup where he has attached his tripod to his camera with the ball head, but he also has a backup uh, connection here. And Let me try and describe what I'm looking at on this picture. It is... Like uh, a leash. Yeah, it's a leash. It's a leash that he's attached to it, and the parts that are connected to his actual camera frame are connected to his L-bracket, so that's a really mm. safe place to mm-hmm. attach things. It's a sturdy location for you to attach something where it's not going to bend and break on you. Right. And so this is why he's able to keep his camera out on his tripod and trust that as he's hiking, he's okay with it. On top of the fact that he'll keep things around his neck, not banging around, and he has a neoprene sock that he'll put on his camera body. He doesn't have one that fits his current camera, but he's heard of other people using it. And so it's an awesome way to, you know, you don't like it dangling around your neck and banging against you. But if you have right. that, you know, wetsuit neoprene around your camera mm-hmm. body, it's not mm-hmm. as bad of a thing to bang against you. Right. It's out and available. You got your lens ready to go if you need to attach it or a secondary lens in the pocket. And honestly, I think, hmm. how can we do that? We keep using our Tamron lens, which is huge. Yeah. So do I want to have my Tamron lens, this beast, on the end of my camera hanging off my neck? No, I don't. No, it's like a noose.
1: It's <laughs> this, this heavy thing.
0: And so, on that topic, Royce, yeah. have you ever had the issue where you're out for photography and you're trying to head to a specific location, but you wished you had your camera out? Or what do you do to make sure that you don't bypass beautiful portfolio shots on the journey heading to the destination you had planned? You know,
2: a lot of times, if it's a fairly short distance, less than two miles, I'll put my camera that's on a cell bracket, that's on the tripod, just over my shoulder. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And oh, okay. put a neoprene around the tripod leg so I don't gouge my <laughs> shoulder <laughs> and kill it. And then, of course, I go from one shoulder to the next, back as you and get, forth. Yeah, it gets stiff. Okay. Yeah. But as, as long as it's not too far, that's what I like to do. And as long as it's not too big of a tripod... I tell you, the uh, L brackets are the most wonderful thing that's happened (laughs) in the last few years. Anybody that's doing night photography uh, or almost any type of photography that isn't using an L bracket to go from horizontal to vertical Mm -hmm, and back again, they're missing out on a lot of things because it's so precise and quick and easy to do. There's less fumbling and less dropping of your camera. I noticed that he has kind of a little leash on there. Yeah. And uh, that, you know, it's nice. A lot of people will take that camera strap and they'll put it around their neck when they're undoing the... um, uh, oh, the connection from yeah. the camera to the tripod or the L bracket oh, and the neck strap. Uh, yeah. 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 And they'll put the neck strap over because we all fumble, we all goof up sometimes. <laughs> right. Yeah. And I've done it before and had cameras drop on the mm-hmm. lens. Oh, yeah.
0: That's an and so this
2: up. little uh, uh, looks like a nylon leash that he's got and he's using an electrical yeah, like a zip tie. Yeah, zip tie. Yeah, yeah. yeah.
0: Oh, it is a zip tie. Yeah. <laughs>
2: And, you know, anything that you can do like that to protect yourself. I destroyed uh, a 24-millimeter lens one time. I had it on the tripod just a few feet from uh, my vehicle. I I remembered something that I needed before I left, so I I opened the door of the car and swung around we had my backpack on. The backpack oh. caught the camera <laughs> no. and knocked it over, and it fell down straight down on the lens. Was
0: there a lens? Uh, yeah,
2: now the lens had a cap on it and a hood. And it protected the, the lens didn't hurt the lens, but the impact was so great, it broke it right off the bayonet. The bayonet separated from the lens. The bayonet (laughs) was still in the camera. Yeah. Oh, man.
1: (laughs) Uh, Time for surgery after that. Uh, (laughs)
0: That must have been a depressing moment to use that little... on The front of your camera where you're dismounting a lens, you push that button to unscrew it, and you're unscrewing half of your lens. Yeah,
2: <laughs> so so this was a Rokinon 24 millimeter lens, which cost me about $550, mm-hmm. which wasn't too bad Com-
0: considering. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and I
2: had a two thousand dollar 24 millimeter same f1.4 oh. in the uh in the car, but you had to stop the darn thing down to f2.8. And before it eliminated as much coma as the Rokinon 1.4 already had eliminated, wide open.
0: Right. So. So even I was, though it was 1.4, you're stopping up to 2.4, you say? 2.8, 2.8? yeah, yeah 8. two that, stops. That's a huge loss. So I mm-hmm. had to
2: lo- lose two stops in order to get what I need. But you know, which means I had to rack my ISO up to almost 10,000 <laughs> in yeah. order to get the same shot that I could have got at ISO. You know, four thousand with my Rokin.
0: Mm-hmm. Oh man, what uh, was that two thousand dollar lens? Was it a s- I, It
2: was a it was a Canon F one point four twenty four millimeter, mm-hmm. and uh, I thought it was going to solve all my problems. You know, hey, be able to shoot at F one point four, I can drop my ISO down two stops. Right? Yeah. And but the coma at F one point four was, I mean. The stars look like flying saucers. Oh, yeah. (laughs) You know, angels with wings. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
0: This is a perfect segue for the next listener question because I've been talking to Chris on Instagram a lot. And first, Rob, thanks a lot for that comment and helping us with that thought. We just got to get our mindset to get our gear out and have it available because when it's not available, you keep it in your backpack and you don't pull it out. So Chris, Chris has been approaching me and asking me questions about his first lens purchase. He has a good lens that he's been using, but he wants one for astrophotography, and he wants one for landscape. And specifically, he's not going to buy both at this point, so he's looking for a nice hybrid. And as I've been talking to him, he's asking me questions specifically about the Rokinon 24mm. Mm-hmm. First... He mentioned that he noticed a lot of comments that people were getting, you know, scary stories of buying a Rokinon 24mm, and the lens would come, and it was just in terrible shape, even possibly part of the lens element was loose, and it would be shifting on them, and they couldn't focus, or it'd have a part of this. I think you said a part of the image was out of focus and it would never get in focus. Because so, like of that. quality control issues. Yeah, I've yeah. never had that issue with mine. Yeah, the, you?
2: The, the Rokinons, the early Rokinons, and even occasionally now have quality control issues. Oh. I mean, they're they're great lenses. The optics are very good. I think mm-hmm. they do a good job of the multi coating and everything. But occasionally, I see some alignment problems. Yeah, that's uh, it. And stuff that comes out. Uh, the 24 millimeter Rokinon that I replaced on the one that got destroyed that we <laughs> talked about a few minutes ago, uh, it is not as sharp as the original one. Oh, uh, really? Yeah. It's just not quite as sharp. And I've seen some that have come that uh, even have worse issues than that. So when you buy a, a Rokinon, any of these... Uh, Uh, Rokinon lenses or Sam Sam Yang Yang or Bauer, Uh, you know, test them. If you're not satisfied, you see some issues, send them right back. They're good at replacing things very quickly. Mm -hmm. Uh, But for the most part, you get a lot of lens quality, for the money, right? Uh, the parts in them, the internal parts in them, a lot of them are plastic. So mm. if you use the lens only, uh, you know, about 20 times a year, it's gonna last probably for 10, 10 years. But if you use the lens uh, every day, like I do sometimes, and you you use it a lot, it's not going to last as long. The optics, are, uh, on the most part, are very good, but it's not a super durable lens, because there are a lot of plastic components. Now, even Nikon and Canon have got a lot of plastic components in their lenses now, and so does Tamron and Sigma and so on, because... uh, it's to reduce weight. Right. 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 Cut the weight down. But if they're, uh, let me give you an example. The screws that mount the, the stainless steel bayonet to your camera on the, um, Rokinon go through, uh, plastic in order to attach Mm -hmm. to that metal Mm -hmm. bayonet. And, uh, Do you think that's a weak link?
1: Yeah. Yeah, it is. And so if the
2: lens hits something hard, those screws will pull through the the plastic. Yeah, Yeah, they'll break through the plastic. Uh, Canon and Nikon wouldn't do that on uh, parts that receive a lot of stress. They'll use it on on, uh, housing, on the barrel. You know, a plastic Mm. barrel... uh, is actually stronger than metal because uh, it will give a little bit instead Mm. of bending in and putting a dent in. So some plastics are actually stronger than than metal. So some of the plastic components are very useful and just as durable as metal, actually more durable. Mm -hmm. But there are certain parts that shouldn't be plastic. And unfortunately, Rokinon has a few parts in there that, that are critical Parts that are plastic, right? So the the lens won't hold up as long, but for the money you pay, uh, anywhere from three fifty to four hundred, five hundred and fifty dollars, yeah. you get one heck of a piece of glass.
0: And you made the advice. You get. You gave the advice that the older, ten, the older. Samyang Yang, and Roki Nun lenses had more of a problem than the newer ones. Yeah, they're, Is they're, any...
2: because they've, they've gotten some bad press from photographers, okay. they've cleaned up their act in the last yeah. few years. I've seen a lot better uh, quality control in the last few years than I did originally.
0: Do you have any advice on how we could know whether we're purchasing an older or a new one? I guess when I get a used one, I don't know. They won't give me that information necessarily, but when you purchase straight from what? Adorama, I, B&H. Yeah, Are you a yeah you're getting a difference. new lens. Yeah. Right. Okay. So I didn't realize that the Rokinons and the Samyang lenses were going to have less of a lifespan. I didn't realize that. And mm-hmm. so that's good to know mm-hmm. with mine that eventually it's just going to... So I bought it used, and eventually I'm going to make it even more used, and it might be out. And so I'll have to buy another one. So it's nice right. and cheap. But, yeah, it doesn't have long of a lifespan. Yeah,
2: if you put it through rugged use like some professionals do, where they're banging it around and they're taking it on and off the camera, they're changing the focus back and forth and all this kind of stuff, and they're just using it day in and day out, um, it's not going to hold up. For most amateur photographers, though, who only use that lens, you know, maybe uh, take it out of the bag 20, 30 times a year and use it, It's going to last for quite a while.
0: Yeah. So it's a great investment for the money then still. It is. It It is. is. It is
1: definitely an issue of you pay what you get. You know, you get what you pay for, but... If you don't, yeah, like like you said, if you don't use it very much, then it's a great And for astrophotography,
0: the comb in it, it's amazing. Right. So, it's so fantastic. Right. So that's what Chris is looking for is an amazing astrophotography lens. But he had this other question about, well, if I only got one right now and it was a good landscape and astrophotography lens, what would I recommend? And we talked about mm-hmm. some things that I recommended. But what would you recommend, Royce?
2: Well, a good zoom lens out there that I really like is the Tamron 15 to 30 mm-hmm. millimeter f2.8. Yeah, it's awesome. got stabilization uh, built in, and you wouldn't think, well, I don't need stabilization <laughs> for a 15 to 30 millimeter. I mean, that baby at 15 millimeters, I've, I've actually handheld it at a half a second.
0: Really? Yeah, I never tested the stabilization that much. Yeah, it's it's just incredible.
2: <laughs> oh. uh, I find the zoom is a little stiff. The thing's mm-hmm. built like a tank. It's a heavy lens. Yes, <laughs> yeah. It's yeah. A, uh, it's, yeah. it's very solidly built. Uh, its sharpness and uh, low coma correction, coma correction, are as good as or better than the nikon 14 to 24 millimeter f 2.8 oh, really which is an incredible lens uh, it was my go-to standard for for many years mm. uh, it's still a wonderful lens it's much lighter and compact more compact than the mm. 15 to mm-hmm. 30 but as far as optical quality the 15 to 30 tamron is just as good, if not better. Several mm. reviews have shown, and I've actually done tests uh, that it is just a tad bit better than the, than the Nikon. <laughs> That's wow. amazing. Can you believe that? And it's uh, we're talking about uh, twelve hundred dollars versus. What uh, eighteen ninety nine, almost nineteen hundred dollars. Right. Or
0: if you get lucky like Brendan and I and capture it used, that was lightly used, we got it for eight hundred, seven hundred dollars. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Awesome. The thing
2: I don't like about either one of those lenses, they're ultra wide zooms that have such a big front element. Oh yeah, you cannot. Buy a filter for them right. unless you get those super huge what one hundred and twenty mm-hmm. millimeters you got a millimeter nissy mm, squares
0: yeah, yeah. Oh, they're so expensive they're just really the, pricey yeah just the holder was like four hundred dollars
1: right yeah easily and <laughs> another hundred or two for just the filters per filter yeah. too so
0: well yeah. it feels really good that everything you're saying are the pros and cons are the same thing I was already telling Chris, so I feel yeah. really enthused that yeah. I was giving him the right information um, you Maybe we'll know this answer, because I haven't tested it yet. And Chris found on DP Review, or I don't know what site he found, but he found a graph online that showed the coma issues and possible diffraction that was happening in the lens, comparing the Tamron 15-30 with the Canon 16-35 Mark III. Have you had a chance to mm-hmm. play around with the Mark III?
2: I have not. Oh, I've, I've only used the old version. And it, it has, cons- uh, I mean, it's got pretty good coma correction, but around the corners... Um, yeah, it's it can be terrible. it's not as good as the Nikon, and then of course you're losing two millimeters on the uh, the widest, and even that fifteen millimeter to thirty millimeter Tamron, it's about three to four degrees of coverage that you lose going from fourteen to fifteen, but mm, you that's do pretty pick significant. you do pick up um, six more millimeters on the other end, right? <laughs> you know. Kind of telephoto effect.
0: So, on that same note, would you recommend the fourteen millimeter Rokinon ever for a first lens? If they want a really wide lens,
2: absolutely, absolutely. For the money, and for astrophotography, uh, and even some great daytime landscape photography. Oh, really? It is a super lens. It's well coated, well corrected. Uh, you know, it's all manual focus, and that's right. that's mm-hmm. where you where they save the money. And it's manual aperture, manual focus. You have to think before you shoot with it. Yeah, <laughs> the big difference between the 14 millimeter Rokinon and the other two lenses we talked about, the Tamron and the uh, Nikon, is the follow. Both the Nikon and the Tamron. At wide open at f 2.8, uh, have about a stop of fall off into the corners. Mm. Okay, wide open, uh, almost a stop and a half. The um, Rokinon has two and a half stop fall off from center to corner. Mm. That's pretty significant. <laughs> you can correct for that fall off, but remember when you've got two and a half stops of fall off, and you correct for that. You're basically taking an underexposed part of your image and correcting it, but you're go- if you underexposed your image two and a half stop, and then you bring it back uh, digitally, Yikes. you're going to have some problems. Aren't quality you serious issues, aren't some quality issues. Yeah. yeah. Because you don't have the full gamut, the full mm. tonal value. The big problem comes with crossovers, as you correct for underexposure the colors don't logarithmically uh, fall in place especially the magenta will cross over you'll get uh reddish magenta corners if you correct that completely i think very reddish magenta corners that explains some things
1: that i've gone through as well that i've seen yeah me too yeah
2: Yeah. there's a section in my ebook on the on the last page that tells you how to correct that, okay, I think it's on page one forty or 139 or you something. You know your like that. pages.
0: That's awesome. One yeah. of my favorite parts of your ebook was the part where you had the histogram explaining how you can underexpose your Milky Way very easily if you don't have that separation between the stars and the Milky Way. Mm -hmm. And I was kind of jamming too far to the left in a lot of my shots. And then when I started focusing on what you're saying, I realized, bring my ISO up a little bit more so that you can get that separation. And I noticed a huge difference in the quality of my stars and my sharpness. It's called
2: exposed to the right, Mm -hmm. and uh, it's an old term. And what you do is you expose more so that you get that better shadow detail uh, as long as you don't blow out your highlights. But right. there's this little dance that we have <laughs> Right. That the more that we give it the proper exposure, as much as we can, we have to jack the ISO. Right. Uh, so the <laughs> yep. question often comes with people, well, if I expose this so that my highlights... The, the the part of the milky way that the central bulge just hits the center of the histogram goes halfway if i do that then i've got to raise my iso clear up to 6400 mm-hmm. and wouldn't it wouldn't be better for me to knock that down to 3200 or even 2000 so that uh, i don't have that much noise well tests have shown that if you do that, if you underexpose it and then have to bring it up later, you actually get more noise get than more if you had shot at the higher ISO oh, wow. in the beginning. That's what Isn't that incredible? That's what I've been
1: <laughs> noticing last year as, as we started doing more and more astro shots. I just started jacking the ISO up higher, and not, and I noticed the image quality better than my earlier shots where I was doing it more, but, but then I had post. to bring them up more yeah those <laughs> those using the sense. new
2: uh Sony cameras uh you know what is it the uh, A7R and the A7S yeah. the yeah. the twos the uh, A7R2 two, and the eight. A7S2 Uh, Those sensors can go up to, like, incredible ISOs of around 25,000 and 50,000 and get some pretty good results. Mm
0: -hmm. I've been tempted to try an A7R II. I'm wondering if maybe if they come out the A7R III or something that Sony brings out this year. It might tempt me away from Canon just because I'm specifically more astrophotography and landscape. I don't know. I'm not ready yet. I'm not sure. Yeah. Yeah. I took a lot of time on Chris's question, but let me just emphasize before we go into our other Ask questions, guys. We want to tell your photog adventure story, and so if you guys have any photog adventures that you've gone out on your own, please let us know in our photog adventures listeners group, or on Instagram, on our social media, or on our website, photogadventures.com. We'd love to hear them. We'll post them. We'll carry them through in a podcast and tell your story on on the podcast, as well as any questions that you might have. We'd love to take them and field them on our podcast. So hit us up. And so let's take our first break. And when we come back, let's get into some of these questions from the listeners, tell some stories, and then let's talk astrophotography. All right.
1: So the first one from the listeners group comes from Brent Huntley. He asks, uh, any tips when you only have a slower lens um, at f 3.5, for example. Well,
2: that is a wonderful question. A lot of people have said to me, "Well, I only have a kit lens that's uh, right. 3.5." Mm-hmm. well The biggest problem with kit lenses is not the 3.5, but the the focus. The focus on those oh, things yeah. that are terrible. Right. You know, it's hard to manual focus some of those kit lenses. They don't even have some of them. Don't even have a focus ring. Have you ever noticed that? I mm. didn't notice that. Yeah. Lot. I wonder. It's all internal mm. autofocus. But uh, most of the kit lenses, you can manual focus. But most of these kit lenses are 3.5, and you shoot wide open, you're going to have quite a bit of coma mm-hmm. on, on many of these. Coma usually only shows up, though, near the edges and in the corners. If you use the center portion of the lens, you uh, you get pretty good results. Mm-hmm. Well, first of all, let's start start out, though, about the uh, fact that we're losing half a stop. Right. right? 3.5 instead of 2.8. If you lose a half a stop, that isn't the end of the world. The histogram isn't going to be as good. But you can, and usually some of your cheaper cameras, the ISO doesn't look as good right. between 3200 and 6400 So your only other option is to try to correct it a little bit in post. Remember, you're starting with an underexposed image. You haven't brought your highlights up to the middle of the histogram, yeah. to the right. Your only other option now is to go a longer exposure. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, what happens when you do a longer exposure? You start getting star trailing or right. blurring. But if your image is only going to go to an 8 by 10 print or a 11 by 14 print, the uh, the trailing is not too bad so my suggestion is to go a full 30 seconds usually your best images are going to come out between mm. 20 and 25 seconds rather than the whole 30 seconds but in this case you'll want to go 30 seconds maybe even 45 seconds wow. okay, okay? <laughs> and that's going to cause some blurring of the stars some tra- trailing of the stars but that's better than the alternative, which right. is an underexposed exposed a really image. really noisy uh, garbage yeah. image, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. The second thing that you can do is to shoot multiple images, do, do a panorama. And stitch them together. In other words, mm-hmm. put your camera, if, if you've got a horizontal image, uh, for instance, yeah. put that camera in a vertical position and do at least three or four shots taking up the same area, overlapping by 50%. Oh, I see.
0: And mm-hmm. then
2: stitch that image together. And you will have super high resolution.
0: Mm. And you remember
2: you can go the, the longer exposure and the tracking doesn't look as bad when you've got these multiple multiple images and blending them together. Yeah. So the resolution is is really good. And because you're stitching the center of the image, remember you're overlapping by about 50% yeah. or more. The stitching software is using just the center portion of each image. The
0: best portion. Oh. The without best without portion. The ball off okay. and without the coma. Yeah.
2: <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. And another thing that you can do is a is a method called stacking. What photographers have learned here in the last few years that you can underexpose your image. Remember, I said that to go 45 seconds. Mm-hmm. Well, go back to maybe even 20 or 25 seconds underexpose it and shoot about 7 shots of each exposure just as fast as you can and then move to the next area overlapping by 50% and keep doing that so you let's say if you have a 3 image panorama Your camera's in the vertical position, and you're trying to make a three-image composite stitch, Mm -hmm. making one horizontal. You're going to be using just the center of the image. You take three images, and you shoot seven exposures of each frame of the stitch. That's going to be a total of 21 images, right? Right, yeah, it's going to be huge. You stack... Each of those images together in a stacking program, and there's several star stacking programs mm-hmm. out there. Yeah. On Some the Macintosh side, there is one called Starry Landscape Stacker. Okay. And it's only 20 bucks. Hmm.
0: That's not And bad. Uh, yeah.
2: you go in with the software and you tell where the trees and mountains are in the foreground, where the edges. Oh, and it leaves Be- those alone? And it'll leave oh. those alone. <laughs> so remember, you've got time in between each one of those exposures. Right. And mm-hmm. the stars are moving because of the rotation of the Earth. It'll actually line those stars up on all of the images so they're one on top of the oh. other. Build your exposure. You can underexpose by at least a stop and it'll build the exposure up. And remember each one of those images has a different noise pattern. Mm -hmm. And so it uses what's called a median filter, M E D I A N. Uh Uh Okay. And blends those together. And your, your skies are as creamy smooth as you just wouldn't (laughs) believe. And then it builds the exposure up. And because the earth is rotating, your, um landscape is going to be blurred mm-hmm, but the software yeah. mm-hmm. fixes that because you tell it where the edges of uh, and it just picks
0: one of the frames and sticks with yeah, that Yeah, just frame. one
2: of you just tell it on one of the frames where the edge of the sky is nice. and the landscape <laughs> begins and it handles all that for you so by building those seven exposures into one and then taking the composite of each one of those exposures, the stacks, into one good exposure, and then stitching it together with your panorama, mm. and only using the center of the image, <laughs> voila! You just cannot believe. You can use a super cheap lens and bring it out. So that's, we have to try that technique, because that's know. how people are
0: getting really There's good a viewer of our YouTube channel that mentioned that we need to bring more stacking into mm. our shots, okay. and I agree been saying I want to try it out, but I wasn't exactly sure, like, do I stack four images, five? You're saying seven images is a good round number? Yeah, three is the minimum. Okay. Okay.
2: Five is good. Seven is a a number that a lot of people use. And that's a lot
0: of time, like you pointed out, a lot of time for the Milky Way to move on you. And so when you have a composition where you're trying to get Milky Way, say, over a silo, Mm -hmm. and it's here, and that's where you want it, in the star stacking software, do you get to designate the location that you wanted to stack everything to, if you wanted that angle of the Milky Way to be at that 45, can you designate this is the spot you should bring everything back to when it's stacking? Uh, no, no, you In can't. Okay, so you kind of get what you get, but. That's right. mm-hmm. I guess you just take everything in quick succession. It shouldn't move that Right, it doesn't move that much. It does, but it's not like it's going to ruin your composition. Right. Let's say
2: a 14-millimeter lens, you would normally expose it for 25, 30 seconds, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Some of these stackers out there are dropping the time to 10 seconds. Wow. So that's at least a stop and a half underexposed. Right. But they will jack they will jack the ISO up from 6,400 all the way to 12,800, hmm. <laughs> okay? So they'll bring it up, the ISO up by another stop, and they're still underexposed by about 30, really? uh, by about 20, 20, 25%. Mm-hmm. But remember, the stacking will build that that exposure density for you. And it kills a lot of the
1: noise then too, huh? Yeah, oh. so
2: even though they're shooting at around 10,000, 12, right. 13,000 ISO, the stacking will smooth out the noise because the noise patterns are layered over top of each other right. with a median filter. Oh man, okay.
0: Mm. I've been wanting to get more clarity and sharpest in my shots in 10 yeah. seconds would take away any slight star trailing oh, at exactly. Wow. Oh Exactly,
2: yeah. and, and see that's the whole idea. Well, the reason why they're going to 10 seconds is so they can pop those off just as quick yeah. as they can, just as <laughs> yeah. fast as that can write to the card, uh-huh. they pop off another 10-second exposure. And then the stars don't have a chance to move that much. And if you're doing a panorama where you've got to do you know, yeah. five, seven of those shots in each one of the stitches— mm-hmm. He gets, uh, like this one guy shot, uh, that was next to me one night, shot Mesa Arch, eight uh, exposure stitch panorama, with seven shots to each. Wow. That's 56 exposures. Yeah. But they're only 10 seconds each, so he was able to uh-huh. get it all the way across pretty
0: fast. <laughs> yeah, you wow. got to be fast. That's 56 chances for someone to turn their headlamp on. You know. <laughs>
2: Yeah, and as soon as somebody does turn their headlight upon, then you add another shot to make up for. Yeah, that. okay, True. okay. Yeah, and it because they're only ten seconds or ten or twelve seconds apart. There's not too much movement. Okay, <laughs> but wow, what? You, but the check. idea is you want those stars to be as crisp,
0: yeah. and pinpoint
2: mm-hmm. as possible.
0: Man, I'm afraid I'm going to like that look too much, and I'm going to do it in every one of my shots. And it's yeah, going to be, it'll be fun to try like out. a two hour process. Y- you, to get you become a little nerdy. Yes, I <laughs> yeah, admit. Yeah.
2: And it takes longer to process all that stuff. But sure. boy, the, but the results, results are though. just incredible.
0: Oh, I'm drooling about mm. it. Oh, gosh. Because I love my Goblin Valley picture, but it is soft. Everything's really soft. Mm-hmm. And I want it to be sharp. And so maybe mm. another plug for Magic Lantern because I can set up my interferometer on Magic Lantern and tell it to take 10 quick shots. Boom, yeah. boom, 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 boom. And I don't have to do as much work. I just yeah. get it going.
1: Yeah. yeah. Okay. So our next tip comes from Rob Ryan. He wants to know uh, tips for getting the most out of your crop sensor.
0: That's the same Rob too, by the way, that had the uh, tip on using the technique of having your camera out already out uh, of the bag yes, and had yes. the leash on it and everything using the neoprene stuff. Yeah. Same, Rob.
2: Well, the, one of the best things that you can do with your crop sensor and with any sensor is to not shoot in the hot summertime and conditions. The hotter your sensor is, the more noise Ooh. that you'll get. <laughs> so keep things as cool as you can. And uh, But you know that in our last segment where we talked about stacking, yeah. stacking really helps on a crop sensor. because. Okay. Remember the pixel, the size of the pixels on a crop sensor are much smaller, and they're more prone to noise. Mm. So any time that you can eliminate some of that noise through stacking, mm. for instance, or tracking, tracking or stacking, either mm. one of those will work. You can either lower your um, your ISO. And use tracking, or raise your ISO and use stacking. Okay, so stack (laughs) track—that's almost poetic. (laughs) I like it. Put it on a shirt.
0: Yeah.
2: Okay, so we have a couple more questions, but we're going
1: to take a quick break, and we'll be right back.
0: Welcome back to the final segment of the Photog Adventures podcast. Again, we're going to bypass gear time and tip of the week because we're getting tons of tips from Royce. So we don't need anything like that. Let's just get right back to it.
1: Yeah, so our next uh, Photog Adventure listeners group member is Daryl Harrington. And he wants to know uh, what, what tips you have for location scouting, Royce.
2: Well, I use Google a lot. Yeah, we do too. <laughs> and it it's it is wonderful. Uh, I use Google to go into the Google Maps and see the terrain. You know, mm-hmm. I go back between the map and the and the topography yeah. view just yeah. to, to see how it looks. But then I do the Google Images once I found the various locations and just pick up as many images from other photographers that oh. I, that I can see.
0: Mhm. Okay. Uh, give you context. To give
2: stuff. me a context of, mm. of what the topography looks like on the ground. Oh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I got uh, hired here a few years ago to go do a, a workshop in uh, Iceland, oh, and cool. they wanted me to, to, you know, be an instructor there. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, who's the, who's the instructor on the ground? And they said, we don't have one. I says, but you can plan it all using uh, you know, Google and Google Maps and Google images. And I said, No you can't <laughs> I says, people are paying a lot of money. You need to be on the ground. Right. You and need so throw it. Yeah. You know, if I do a workshop in an area, I'd try to go there several times on the ground. And right. walk out things mm-hmm. in the daytime and plan it before I get there. But of course, first time if you're not you know you're doing this personally, you want to save as much uh, tire miles as you can. <laughs> right. Uh, yeah. And uh, so I use Stellarium and mm-hmm. uh, photo pills and Sky Guide. Uh, Look at the typo- topography and work with those different apps, Stellarium, Photo Pills, and Sky Guide, mm. to plan uh, where I'm going to set up and shoot in the time of day, uh, time of night, mm-hmm. yeah. and, uh, yeah. and the days of the month of, mm-hmm. of where I'm going to be. And for the most part, it works out pretty good on that first run. And uh, if I have time, and then usually the When I'm there the second, third, and fourth day, uh, you know, I get better at it. uh, But for the first day, first time you're there, you can get a lot of scouting done with Google Maps and using these other applications. But especially bring in those photographs of other photographers Mm -hmm. using, Mm -hmm. you know, searching Google Images,
0: now, to nice. add on to this question, let me ask real quick. You have some awesome lighting that I see you do all the time. And nice. I see in your ebook, Milky Way Nightscapes. If you guys don't have this book already, please go get it because it's an awesome book. It's a fantastic astrophotography yeah. lesson book. I learned a ton from it. And you'll see guides and diagrams where Royce has a landmark that he's been photographing. And he'll show you where he's put these light sources at for his shot. Now, when you go to on the location, are you on the spot deciding whether you want that light source on the right or left or how you want to work with it? Or are you planning in advance in your location scouting?
2: Usually I can't get that detailed planning in advance. Mm -hmm. Once I get on location, I decide where I'm going to place the lights. And if I can get get by with just one light, I'll do it. Mm -hmm. About 50% of the time, I can get by with one light. And the rest of the time, I have to use two lights. 10% of the time, I have to use three lights or more. You know, I do light painting like everybody else does. Light painting is defined in Wikipedia as... A handheld light, and oh, it's right. moving, mm-hmm. <laughs> whereas yeah. I'm doing stationary lighting. And it's, it's what we call low-level landscape lighting. In other words, we dim it way down so it's just barely above the brightness of starlight. You can't even see, hardly see, what you're doing until your eyes become dark-adjusted You know, 20, 30 minutes into mm. it. And even then, you can barely see the effect. Because you're trying to—remember, this type of stationary or static lighting is on tripods or light stands during the—and you just leave it there, and it's on during the whole exposure. That means that several photographers can use the same lighting Mm -hmm. at the same time. And everybody can just go and work. Instead of doing this, okay, I'm going to light paint this. <laughs> right. Everybody get ready. Open shutters. And then he does a five or ten seconds, you know, moving of the of the mm. lights with the hand. Yeah. And it's hit or miss. Right. Oh, we better try to, oh, that looked too hot. Okay, well, let's do it again. <laughs> and once you fine-tune the stationary, low-level landscape lighting, it's locked in, and people can just go and shoot all they want. They can move around and go at their own pace. That's and it's, crazy smart. it's so dreamy yeah. at night yeah. because it's just barely brighter than starlight, so it doesn't ruin your um, your night vision. Your mm-hmm. night vision, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and it's and I usually filter it down to thirty two hundred degrees Kelvin, so okay. it. It doesn't affect your night vision so either. Better because, when it's warmer. W- yeah. Well uh, with the
0: light source, I'm thinking thirty two hundred Kelvin is more warm than blue. That's correct. Right.
2: The warmer wavelengths, you know, the yellow and red wavelengths are less injurious to your night vision uh, than yeah. the than yeah, the colder bluer mm-hmm. wavelengths. I usually shoot uh, set my white balance. I uh, recommend in the book about 3,800 degrees Kelvin. Yeah, yeah. And so the 3,200 degree Kelvin lighting is about 600 degrees warmer. And on landscapes, especially red rock, mm. sandstone, oh, is it's always a little better to be warmer (laughs) than colder. Yeah, so the colors pop a little more. Yeah, the colors pop. Great. Uh, There's a big controversy going on right now with light painting. Two of the national parks, Arches and Canyonlands, have banned light painting this year for commercial (sighs) workshops. Mm -hmm. And then they're going to review this in 2018 and see if they will lift that ban or continue it. It may spread to... All photographers, night photographers, amateur or commercial, right? You get the Co- feeling oh, it that it go might worse. go
0: to amateurs as well.
2: It might, uh, because of the of the crowding. Right now, this is in Arches and Canyonlands. It's already spread to another national park that I can't discuss yet because I haven't secured the print, the permit. Yeah. Yet. <laughs> so you can't this is January right now that we're recording this, and even though the, my application has been in for a couple months, it it's a long process. Oh, and wow. this is a national park that I've had permits for many years in the past, and now all of a sudden, they're saying no no artificial lighting. Right. None
0: whatsoever. None whatsoever. Now, we yeah. wanted to talk to you specifically about this in Arches and Canyonlands, and so you mentioned the low-level lighting. Would they, this other national park that says no artificial lighting, would they even allow that, the dim, dim? They
2: might. Um, They're looking at what's going to happen in arches and canyon lands where there's huge pressure, you know, huge crowd pressure, Mm -hmm. even at night now. They're going to see how that's going and determine Uh, And look at the low-level lighting. I'm probably the world expert in low-level landscape lighting. We've set Mm -hmm. up uh, a website called lowlevellighting.org. Oh, cool. We'll be there. Yeah, with my friend uh, Wayne Pinkston. He's one of my early uh, alumni on the workshops. And he and I together have set up um, a, a website And it's on his website, but the pointer to that is lowlevellighting.org. You can use .com as well.
0: You're talking about the Arches and Canyonlands issue. This is something that right now in 2017, they are allowing amateurs to go in without any restrictions, but it's only targeting commercial use authorization groups, those ones with workshops. Is it something that you see in Canyonlands and Arches Similar going to other national parks, or maybe just all national parks, because they say half the park is after dark. You know, they're really
2: trying to promote that slogan, half the park is is after dark. So they they want to encourage as many people as possible to come into the parks uh, at night just not with cameras and Which not is with bizarre. lights. I thought
0: they were targeting <laughs> yeah. us.
2: How do you,
1: yeah, how do you not <laughs> use lights when you're going out in the middle of the night? I mean, I mean these, it's, these yeah. are dark site areas.
2: And this is one of the things I'm trying to explain to the park commissioners, oh, awesome. is that low-level lighting, low-level landscape lighting that we are promoting and using really follows international dark sky guidelines nice. because of the, yes. the wavelength is more to the warmer uh in many cases we're using only 12 to 25 lumens Wow! which is you know when you're putting the light on constantly for a whole 30 second exposure it only takes 12 to 25 lumens to light up a, a large area yeah. and expose it when you're shooting at ISO 6400 <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah. 12 lumens is as much as one candle power. One lit one candle. candle. So that's 25 fantastic. lumens is only two candle power. Right. Yeah, that's
0: not going to bug anybody looking no. at the stars.
2: Now, keep in mind that... L- the lumens are judged in various different ways. You can get a 15 to 20 lumen spotlight that produces 2 million candle power because oh. it's a focused beam. But we're using what are called panel lights that mm-hmm. have a whole bunch of LEDs on them that are flat lighting. They, they do a very broad angle lighting. and they yeah. fall off exponentially you know the mm. inverse square law mm-hmm. of light fall off
0: I don't uh, know it offhand yeah. but. <laughs> <laughs>
2: well it's in my ebook but uh, oh, okay and it's something that's been out there for many years the inverse square uh, of light fall off so these are panel lights that are not focused so the light fall off is very quickly compared to a spotlight right. or a focused flashlight over in England, you call those torches. <laughs> Bring the torch out. <laughs> yeah.
0: So basically, people who are in the distance won't even have any clue that the light source is even on. And then those who are actually close still have to adjust their eyes to even see it. Uh, mm-hmm.
2: Using this low-level landscape lighting, uh, you can do a lot with 12 to, 12 to 50 lumens of light. And remember, it's filtered light, so it's not affecting your night vision. Mm-hmm. And it's on during the whole time, so multiple people multiple people can share in the experience yeah. right and it's with regular light painting it's going off and on off and on so it's jolting the
0: right. yes. retina yes and, and when you're using it you do lose your night vision when you're using it to do it mm-hmm. exactly. so it kills your own experience
2: and so this low-level lighting is really working out great. And another bonus is that you can use it for star trail photography and oh, yeah. and time-lapse photography Yeah, mm-hmm. because the light remains consistent. Uh, there are lithium batteries out there for these panel lights that will last for eight hours. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So you're just not hurting to make sure it works for when you need to use it. Right. Let's talk more about that because now we're all thinking I'm going to throw away my EGTAC Clicky and it was a $100 purchase that now I feel like after one year, I'm not going to use it anymore. I'm going to go to these stationary lights instead. Mm. It is true. Light painting with the wand is so much more effort when we go back to Goblin Valley. <laughs> instead yeah. of you having to do that seven times in all my different Goblin Hoodoos, yeah. we just do it with those two, two or three panels. Yep. So- Yeah. What is the panel? Do you have a name and a resource that we can look at and say, OK, this is the type we want to purchase? Is all of this just detailed on the website, lowlevellighting.org? It
2: is. My friend uh, Wayne Pinkston has put up several of the lights that we that are mentioned oh, cool. in my ebook, okay. And now you're going to be able to g- get this information for free. He lists various tripods and light stands that you can nice. use, nice. perfect. various panel lights that you can use, and it's all laid out. Various prices. Some of the panel lights uh, they come with filters. They're snap-on magnetic mm-hmm, filters. Mm-hmm. Let me tell you what a panel light is. The most common that we've used for years is called an F and V. F uh, and V. F and V. Okay. The uh, F capital F with an ampersand and a letter V. Oh, okay. Z ninety six led panel light it has 96 leds (laughs) and then it has two snap-on filters a frosty diffusion filter Mm -hmm. that magnetically snaps on and then a conversion an orange conversion filter Mm. that takes this 5600 degree kelvin light which is pretty close to daylight
0: right Mm -hmm. and
2: converts it to 3200 degree kelvin These, and then it's got a dimmer switch on the back that goes from zero to 100%. -hmm.
0: So that's what I was going to ask you. That's how you get to 1225 lumens? Exactly. Okay. Okay. So
2: it starts out at uh, 800 lux, about 225 lumens, and you can bring Mm, it down all the way to... You know, to about 12 lumens. Okay. Now there are other ones out there on the market that are digitally controlled. I mean, they will digitally do stop. You know, it go 10 percent, 15 percent, 20 percent. Those are more expensive. And there's ones out there that will digitally change the color balance. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. All the way from so 5,500 or fifty-six 5, hundred degrees Kelvin down to thirty-two. Yeah, digitally has a cheap one do like that. So you have yeah. two dials: one a dimmer switch, and one a light balance, a yeah. color temperature switch. Nice. switch. <laughs> nice. And those are more expensive. The F and V's uh, run about a hundred and sixty-nine Sixty-nine dollars. Uh, for the brand name, there mm-hmm. are Chinese rip-offs out there that say F and V, and they're <laughs> about $85. Oh, have you so used one half. of those, so it's oh, worth yeah. going with? Now, what's the difference between the two? Well, there's some electronics in the F and V that when you're— uh, by the way, it uses five AA batteries inside. And goes oh, eight okay. hours with the five AA batteries? No, it only goes at about uh, half an hour full— Full blast, oh, I see, and goes for a couple of hours at at about a quarter power, at oh, about okay. eighth power, round down to about 12 25 lumens, it'll go several hours. But then on the outside is a clip on that you can use Sony video batteries, yeah, lithium right, batteries, right. and those are the ones that will last <laughs> you know four, six, eight hours. Yeah, okay, even, gotta go with even those, full then. charge, yeah, yeah.
0: That's the same Sony video hookup that you have on your light yeah, panel, so right? Yes, I've got a Jung-yo, um A young nuo, young nuo.
1: Yeah, sorry, young nuo brand light panel that does probably
0: a knockoff of F and <laughs> Maybe it was a similar idea. But yeah. then I was worried originally that that wouldn't be powerful enough. We need like six or seven of them to light a scene. But now that's I that was crazy talk because no, we actually three, wanted we'll to be it. low right. and very low. So then it's not just as yeah, big, Yeah, you're going bright- to
2: find in many cases you'll have to dim these down to almost the lowest mm-hmm. setting in order <laughs> no. to work, especially at some of your landscape objects that are only 20, 30, 30 feet away. Right, Anything right. that's, uh, you know, like several hundred feet away, you may be quarter, half power. Right. And uh, so they're, they're wonderful units. Like I say, we have a variety of, of them listed on this website, and so everything's there. Nice. And we're not making any money off this. Oh, Not no. selling any resource. ebooks. Uh, I don't even think Wayne has got uh, Amazon links on it so that, you know. He won't you even it. make any off the clicks. Uh, none, none of those 2% kickback from mm-hmm. Amazon. <laughs>
0: well, that's too bad.
2: <laughs> yeah, it is too bad. I should talk to Wayne yeah,
0: about that. Yeah, you should. That. That's a good idea. And definitely purchase his effort. book. Uh, yeah. You deserve all the money in the world for that ebook because I love that ebook and I recommend it to everyone. And in fact, I haven't done the contest yet, but I have three of those copies of the ebook to give out and contest. For Foot oh, yeah, Adventures. Yeah, yeah. So I just what a nice guy. <laughs> I'm excited for those to go out. And I'm sure that those of you listening right now might be thinking, oh, what contests are you going to do? And can I get some? And so maybe I'm, just
1: ask Aaron nicely in an email <laughs> and send him some chocolates or something.
0: So while we're talking about lights, before it's all over and we're all done with this conversation, I think all of us are thinking maybe, okay, now I've got one. I have a panel. I have it dimmed. I have it like you described and I need to light paint uh, an object. Just as an amateur level, what do I decide? Do I decide to light paint the side of my object that has the Milky Way coming over it? Or have you found in the past that maybe it's better to contrast that with the shadow side nearest the Milky Way, and it's over here? What makes your decision on where your light source is? Hmm. Oh,
2: wonderful. Those are all good questions. Uh, Let me bring out a point that I think we all know. Um, How does flash on camera look? horrible it looks horrible (laughs) doesn't it yes well the biggest problem that i see with most light painting out there is people will light paint from standing behind their camera right yeah Yeah. Uh, that's flash on camera isn't (laughs) Mm -hmm. it because the light is coming from the same axis as your lens Duh. <laughs> Let's walk around. Let's get at least 45 degrees axis from our lens mm-hmm. or even go 90 perpendicular. Well, what I like to do is even go 120 degrees a little bit more than perpendicular come from Almost behind. behind. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's it's what we call rim lighting. Yeah, In portraiture, yeah. you have what is called rim lighting. Well, put that your key light, on the same side as your milky way if your milky way if the uh, central bulge of your milky way that's the bright core of your milky way is up over the horizon and it's going a lot of times in the summer in the early evening of the astral uh astronomical twilight that darkest part Mm. part of the night
0: yeah right after astronomical twilight
2: yeah exactly which is at least approximately one and a half to two hours after sunset. Mm -hmm. So in that early part in the summertime, you'll see the Milky Way is at about a 45-degree angle, and with the central bulge dip being down towards the horizon, here in North America anyway. Right, at least Mm -hmm. in our lives. And so let's say you put the central bulge on the right side of your image— and then the rest of the Milky Way goes across diagonally to the left side, right? Yeah. Okay. Let's say your foreground object that you want to highlight, you're putting it either in the center or on the left side so that it balances with that core. Yeah. The core on the right side, the key component of your foreground down to the bottom third on the left side, right? Yeah. Take your light source and put it slightly behind 90 degrees, about 120 perpendicular, and do that rim light effect coming from the right side just out of camera view, you know, block it with a tree or a rock so it's not hitting your lens and causing lens flare. What you're doing here is simulating... The light coming from the central core oh. bulge of the Milky Way, like it's so it looks very scene. natural. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Do You see the idea? Yeah, yeah. what Beautiful. we're doing? Yeah. Uh-huh, absolutely. And it, it'll be pleasing to your eye, and you'll. Many people don't know why that's pleasing, Mm. (laughs) but because it's natural. And they just Mm -hmm. think subconsciously, that's the light source. source." Yeah, yeah. yeah. Exactly. That's fantastic.
0: (laughs) Good. I was on the right track thinking that way, but I look back at some of my pictures, I wonder if I ever lit from a different angle, just not paying attention. Mm
1: -hmm. So this is a... So from Mark Lawrence, who's on our Facebook listeners, that was his question. So Mark, I hope you enjoyed that answer, because... Royce just gave a very detailed uh, answer for you.
0: I don't think Mark is listening anymore. I think he's already at lowlevellighting.org and he's checking that out. Probably, yeah. <laughs> Royce, it has been a serious pleasure having you on. It was an amazing luck for us the night at Mirror Lake when we came across you. Oh I mean, yeah, we, we were glowing for weeks telling our wives, oh, it was so perfect that we went because we met Royce Bear. Because our wives were like, you got no sleep, right? We're like, yeah, we didn't get any sleep, <laughs> but, yeah, but it's
1: because we met Royce we Bear. We met Royce Bear when we were there. If we
0: had not gone that (laughs) night when we did we wouldn't have seen him it was huge and we've been happy about it ever since consider ourselves hugely fortunate and lucky as you know we call ourselves friends of Royce Bear now (laughs)
2: <laughs> well thank you. We we found the quiet water, didn't we? Yes, yes we for did. For the for awesome. the wonderful reflections yeah. of oh, the Milky Way. So thank you for in that. the water. Yes.
0: <laughs> I can't wait to go back and do it again. Yeah. Can't wait back to try it again. At the time I had my seventy D, my crop sensor, and I didn't do any stacking. I didn't do any of the exposed to the right method or the panorama that I should have done. So now go back to my sixty and get it really yeah. nice. So, appreciate the time, Royce. Thank you so much for coming. Last thing I want to ask is, when can you go out with us to go to the Knolls? We talked about this at Mirror Lake. If you wanted to join us out by on the way to the Salt Flats, there's the Knolls, and we were going know, to go You know, I went there last that. month. How come you didn't come with me? Did you really? Yeah, I did. Oh. Did you go there for night photography? Yes. Has the bulge come up high enough? Because right now, until no, the moon's no, down, no, the it bulge was, is uh, to 26 yeah. or something, I was right?
2: doing uh, Orion Belt. Oh, okay. oh,
0: what were you doing? Zooming in on the... Uh, the nebula there?
2: You know, actually, I did get a little bit of the Milky Way. It was just above the the bulge, but getting a lot of light pollution from Wendover mm-hmm. that night. Mm-hmm. And I was looking to the oh, west, shooting yeah. to the oh, west. Okay. You know, those sand dunes out there are kind of a gray white. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And they're pretty nice sand dunes. Uh, in the summertime, the, those things don't have any wind ripples on them because mm. they they got tire tracks through them all <laughs> right. But, right but if you go this time of the year there's oh. not too oh. much activity okay. out there let's go that's soon. a good idea so i used some low level light painting with just one panel light uh-huh. and had it down low so it casts the shadow across the ripples. Awesome. put that in the foreground with a 14 millimeter lens and then had the milky way coming up out of the sand dune yeah, it oh, was pretty nice. nice. Okay. Now you're
0: looking west, so you had the yeah. I'm looking west, and so you had arm.
2: Wendover. Uh, it was kind of a semi cloudy night, so you, there were some low clouds. So there was a lot of light pollution yeah. there mm-hmm. abo- above Wendover. Then when I finished with that, then I turned to the uh, northeastern sky to. To shoot the Orion's Belt and Beetlejuice and yeah. all those fun things. When I mm. I want a
0: double fog filter so I can capture the color really nice because oh get that is that so neat.
2: Yeah, I shot that with a double fog filter. Uh, a double fog filter uh, simulates uh, a haze or thin clouds atmosphere, mm-hmm, right. which mm-hmm. causes the um, stars to glow and flare right. a little bit. And what I'll do is, uh, by the way, you can't use that filter on a 14 to 24 millimeter or 15 to 30 because they don't make one that right. big. Right. So uh, you, you're right. stuck with the 24 millimeter, <laughs> you know, mm. like a Rokinon 24 millimeter or, or uh, on a Canon, you've got a 16 to 35 yeah. that you yeah. could use it on. Yeah, don't worry about coma
0: in that situation. And Mm -hmm. it's
2: beautiful what it does, but many people think that it causes a little too much fog, so I'll shoot two exposures. I'll shoot one with the filter on and one without, and then I'll blend them in Photoshop layers. Yeah, Yeah, and then I'll I'll just change the opacity until I get the the glow the way I like it. Yeah, so it looks natural. Yeah, nice. Yeah,
0: Beetlejuice is really bright and yellow, and then Rigel is really bluish white, and so those two contrasting are so cool. Oh, it Mm. is so
2: neat, and a lot of people don't realize how the stars are different color.
0: Mm-hmm. And, uh, they think white only. Yeah, they, right. they,
2: they think they're only white only or light blue or something like that. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. And mm-hmm. each one has a different Kelvin temperature. And the um, that filter, the double fog filter, double fog three, I think it's called. That's the one mm-hmm. I'm looking for mm-hmm.
0: is a Tiffin double fog three filter. Yeah, okay.
2: it, uh, when it gl- causes the stars to glow, it glows that color. Reds the, and yellows and reds blues. Reds and, and yellows and, and mm. oranges and yellows. <laughs> I mean, like, what is it, Antares that's on the the uh, Antares? Yeah, it's is a really bright
0: orange one. Bright, right? or, bright orange. Mm-hmm. Oh,
2: it just makes that stand out. Uh, I like can't wait to get believe. one.
0: You made me realize how the Rokinon will be still useful for me because it yeah. keeps using the Tamron, but I got a screw-on double-fog filter for the Rokinon, right, and I can't right. find one for our Tamron giant glass element that's on the front. Yeah, I
2: remember mm-hmm. in some of the early days, I'd get some of these uh, slightly overcast nights, and I'd think, oh, this is terrible. You know, I'm not getting a clear Milky Way, but it would cause the lar- brighter stars to glow and bring out their true color. And I thought, oh. wow, this is way cool. <laughs> yeah. I wonder if there's a filter that you could get that would uh, <laughs> do the same thing. And there is. Yeah.
0: 1970s music video filter. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so the
2: Tiffin and, Tiff and Devil Fog 3 is nice. the filter you want. Okay. And sometimes, like I say, I'll, I'll shoot it with and without the filter because it does soften the landscape just a little bit. So sometimes yeah. I'll take it off for the landscape. Oh, yeah, exposure. you do have to take it off for that mm-hmm. half. Yeah. And, and it doesn't soften it very much. Uh, But boy, it sure causes the stars to glow and reveal their true
0: colors. (laughs) Oh, that's definitely on my wish list. Phil Collins couldn't have said any better. (laughs) (laughs) Royce, thank you so much for being with us tonight and coming all the way out here. Thank you guys for listening. Thanks, everybody who posted the questions for us on Instagram and our Facebook group, uh, Photog Adventures Listeners. We really appreciate you guys. Yeah, thanks, guys. And anything else you want to add or ask or go? No, I'm good. I'm satisfied. (laughs) Yeah. This is a good episode. Thanks, everybody. We hope you guys have a good week. Take care, guys.